right, welcome back. Uh, it is me, Andrew, and I am joined, as usual, by special guest host, Liz. Four-time returning champion. Yeah. And we also have an extremely special guest with us today from the Well, There's Your Problem podcast and the Do Not Eat YouTube channel. We have Justin Rosniak. H- Hello, it's me. I'm extremely special. You are extremely special. I'm very happy that you agreed to join us on the program because uh, I've heard inklings of your opinions on this topic that we're going to cover uh, before. So I'm excited to give you the opportunity to uh, discuss it in more depth. <laughs> and we will get into the, into it in some depth. Um, so yeah, what we're talking about today is precision scheduled railroading. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I just have... Uh, in the opening of our show notes, precision scheduled railroading and its consequences have been a disaster for the railroading industry, which is <laughs> not a thing you'll hear if you look up like railroading media, you know, like all the railroading trag magazines or whatever. They well, love they have, it. I mean, they have. Honestly, I the more I read industry magazines of any kind, but I guess it especially applies here. It's their manufacturing consent at this point. It's just like reading the actual news. Mm-hmm. Except it's just niche. It's just niche consent that they're manufacturing. I th- I have a more nuanced view on this one. I think, you know, PSR is bad, but it also can be good. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It's just the articles that I see, they talk about shareholders, you know, so I'm put off almost immediately. That, or that they is talk understandable. About how, <laughs> right. Or they talk about how, like, PSR benefits, you know, employees of railroads by basically having less of them. And I'm like, I don't know that that's what that means in that context, <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, but we're going to be cribbing greatly from uh, an article in Vice by Aaron Gordon, um, which is entitled, It's Going to End Up Like Boeing, How Freight Rail is Courting Catastrophe. Which is great because they saved a lot of your research for you. They did. I've been wanting to talk about this uh, for a long time, and I was going to have to research it. And then Aaron helpfully wrote an article that basically covered all of the points I wanted to discuss. So thank you, Aaron. Um, we will now proceed to largely plagiarize your work. Um, and then make jokes about it. Um, so yeah, that's that's um, you know, great artists steal, as they say. So yes. here we are. <laughs> Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Right. To be fair, <laughs> I did give Aaron the opportunity to join us on the program, by which I mean I emailed him and he never got back to me. So, you know, you can't be mad at me now. That's I think that's legally how it works. All right, yes. it's me. I'm very special and also plan B. uh so what the heck is psr anyway um it's it's a i was trying to think of how you would describe psr to a lay person and it's a sort of management philosophy um it's like the the lean manufacturing of railroading or other buzzwords agile etc it's a it's a whole concept of how you run a railroad um, that was come up with by one guy, a guy named E. Hunter Harrison. I forget what the E stands for, but I remember that it was very funny. I have to look <laughs> it up now. I, 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 if you had to abbreviate it, I'm sure it must have been funny. Right. Oh, Ewing. Ewing. <laughs> oh, Ewing, Ewing Hunter Harrison. Harrison. Yeah. Um, who is a railroad guy. You know, he started, it says he, he worked as a Carmen Euler for the Frisco in the ni- 1964 and he basically worked his way up in the railroads eventually he became the ceo of the illinois central where he came up with precision scheduled railroading 
Um, and then from there, he was put in as CEO at a bunch of other railroads. And we've gotten to where we are today, where basically every railroad except for one uses PSR as its operating methodology. Um, it's uh, basically PSR is a way of running a railroad, sort of. It's also a way of not running a railroad um, by stripping it for assets in a lot of cases. Um, and so we'll we'll get into that. Uh, Aaron Gordon describes it as the money ball of railroading, which is, I feel, a very good description. <laughs> but it's... Um, in the article, he says, in an industry that at the time did not run on set schedules, struggled to be profitable, and didn't bother to measure or track many key performance indicators, Harrison bought a rigorous data-driven di- approach to railroad scheduling and asset management that made them run more efficiently. Rather than run hub-and-spoke networks with inefficient branch lines, Harrison sold off unprofitable parts of the business, ran longer, heavier trains at faster speeds on set schedules, and eliminated, eliminated as many intermediate stops to change cargo as possible. So it's a lot about getting rid of so-called underutilized assets, which means closing a bunch of yards and uh, laying up a bunch of locomotives. I've watched a lot of YouTube videos because there are just so many locomotives uh, sitting in yards these days and people just fly over them with drones. Yes, Um, or they paint them like big tigers. Right, exactly. Um it's basically a, a, a sort of cost-cutting strategy, uh, uh, as has been practiced in other industries, you know, in past decades. Um, and it's largely been um, promulgated across the industry through activist investors, which was something I didn't know. I knew that E. Hunter Harrison had jumped around and been CEO of a bunch of railways. What I didn't know that I learned from this article is that that was largely um, caused by activist investors such as Bill Ackman of Pershing Square Capital and other such uh, activist investors who basically, you know, do buy up a bunch of shares and then install him as CEO so that he can do PSR and, and get them some money back. So that's great. We, we love that. That's always yeah. fun. Always fun. Yeah. Great, uh, corporate governance there. Um, you know, that's the, yeah, we love for those people to have immense economic power over our institutions. Um, <laughs> there's just this quote, PSR appears to have definite advantages to some parties. However, the focused co- cost cutting is done with a slash and burn zest rarely seen before by previous cost cutters. So that's, again, also fun. <laughs> so, so I, I, I oh, you go, ahead. go ahead. Well, I was I was thinking, you know, maybe one of the things we got to uh, talk about here is, you know, how, how did the railroads operate before precision yes. scheduled railroading? Like what, what are these terms mean? Like hub and spoke. Um, you know, not running on schedule, so on and so forth. And I, I think, you know, a good example is, you know, sort of looking at um, my, my favorite example is always New England in, let's say, the immediate post Penn Central era, era right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's say, let's say I, I'm a shipper, right? And, and I want to ship a car from New Haven, Connecticut to, I don't know, uh, let's say, Let's say Trenton, New Jersey, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so a, a local train comes and picks up my car that I'm shipping, right? That goes to a yard, and it sits in the yard until the yard has enough cars for there to be a train. And that train then goes to a larger classification yard, in this case, Albany, New York, right? 
So, you know, we're already, because, you know, everything, it's a hub and spoke network, everything goes to Selkirk Yard in Albany um, before we can go, uh, what is it, 121 miles south to Trenton to the destination, we have to go 104 miles north, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> right. Okay. So at, at Selkirk, the car is classified again into another train which then goes south a hundred miles to uh new jersey right and in new jersey it's classified again and then shipped uh like 60 miles to trenton right and each of those classifications can take anywhere from like one to three days um you know depending on how efficiently the yard's being run um you know how well maintained it is (laughs) Yeah, and th- this is a problem that plagued especially eastern uh, eastern railroads that had very complex networks that relied on lots of short distance shipments. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you if if you run, you know, so if you ran the New York, New Haven, and Hartford, you were doing this crap constantly. If you ran something on the other hand, like uh, the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe, right? You you were constantly getting shipments that went you know straight from Chicago to Los Angeles, right? Mm-hmm. And you very rarely had to you didn't have to handle the car a whole bunch of times. The cars were always moving. The cars were always making money, right? Plus the amount of distance meant you got you got really good mileage rates. Yeah, uh, you know people were paying a lot for the premium. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And so what PSR sort of does in in this, you know, in replacement of this hub and spoke sort of system is that rather than having all of these yards and having to reclassify the train at each yard, it's sort of that you just make one big train and then, you know, you might stop off at a yard or, you know, where a yard used to be in many cases and you just uncouple the parts of the train that are meant to stop there and you continue on. Um, which sounds efficient, but also has some real world consequences in terms of trains being ungodly long now. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> lo- longer than like things like railroad crossings were really designed for in a lot of cases. Uh, one thing that I'll mention here is that I live in uh, in the Detroit area and there's a town here called Plymouth, which is sort of hemmed in on all sides by railroad tracks. And they have had real problems with CSX trains, just like blocking all of their roads for hours at a time with their very long trains now. So, um, oh, yeah, my local you know, bike trail, which I like to go get exercise on, is on detour right now. And that detour involves two railroad crossings and uh, CSX parks its big ass trains over both of them pretty much constantly. So, you know, I have to go on a much longer detour to find the bridge over <laughs> Right. Yeah, this is a problem when I lived in Florida, um, driving up to my parents from, from Tampa. Um, just the longest CSX trains you'll ever see. Sometimes the juice train, which is nice, but. Um, <laughs> oh, we get the juice train. We get the juice train combined with the trash train. Oh, are they are they part of the same train now? Yes, they are part of the same train. Because I know they discontinued the ex- dedicated to juice train, but oh my God. No, so usually it's the juice train up front. And then a manifest in the middle, you know, with a whole bunch of mixed cars. And then there's trash mm-hmm. on the back. Oh, good, lovely. Now, the trash and the, the trash and the oranges are never on the same train at the same time because the oranges <laughs> right. go north and the trash goes south. Right. So right. you know, you don't have to worry about uh, your 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 uh, orange juice being contaminated by New York City garbage uh, smell. <laughs> um, 
Although depending on the the time, you know, the the time of the year, the season, you know, whether the orange juice is uh, fresh or not, it may not matter that much. So, but this is a this is a good point. One of the other things about PSR is that E. Hunter Harrison did not like unit trains. Um, so he, uh, one of the things he did at CSX when he became the the CEO there when they implemented PSR, CSX was the big care of the juice train which was Tropicana's dedicated train for carrying orange juice from Florida up to New York. Uh, and they ended that as a dedicated thing. And instead they've tacked it on to other CSX, you know, like manifests and intermodal freight that goes up the same way. Who was it that had the, um, there was that one that carried produce. Um, I think yeah, the, two are the, from California. The um, I believe that was the union Pacific in conjunction with, uh, either CSX or the Norfolk Southern that had a yeah like a refrigerated car train um, that was supposed to be for getting fast produce across the country and they've discontinued that now because of reasons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's you know this is this is the thing and this is the sort of point that I want to get to is that PSR is is um, but one link in a long chain of the sort of managed decline of railroading. That has been going on, I contend, since like maybe the 1940s. Um, Roz, you may have a you know a different idea of when that started. Um, there were some signs of sort of oncoming decline. I feel like as early as like 1916. Yeah, um, not early. Yeah, because you know that was about the ta- last uh, last time uh, new railroad main lines were being constructed. People mm. were building for adequate ca- uh, more capacity. Now, one of the things was uh, after after World War One, there was by that time a lot more focus. You know, locomotives were getting heavier, trains were getting heavier. Uh, because of that, they realized they didn't need quite so much infrastructure to move trains. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this was an era where you know two, three, four. Uh, you know, in the Northeast, even six track main lines were pretty common. Um, and it turned out a lot of that capacity wasn't strictly needed. Once you had, you know, any amount of operating efficiency. Um, so, you know, yeah, a lot cut, of, cut a lot to of the small- 1970s and the guy standing out there on the horseshoe curve going, why do we have four tracks across here? Yeah. And it's been three ever since. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the grand tradition of tearing up rails so that you can go lay them down somewhere else. And then you avoid having to purchase new rail to, to do your maintenance. Yeah, and you also had, you know, a lot of uh, branch lines that were, you know, providing marginal traffic. You know, there were some some aspects of the railroads that were only operating because the government said they had to operate. Right. Um, you know, so it, it's um, and and really after World War II, though, is where you know it, the, the the fortunes of I would say two distinct groups of railroads, the Eastern railroads and the Western railroads, just sort of split. Right. Right. Um, just because you had so much advantage if you were a Western railroad to run big, long, fast trains that mm-hmm. didn't make stops, uh, right. you know, as opposed to not like to, they're going to block any road crossings in Wyoming. <laughs> yeah. And you're also going like 65 miles an hour that whole way right. Even for freight. Yeah. 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 Whereas out here on the East coast, there's a lot more, you know, there's a lot more potential railroad traffic, but a lot of it's short haul. So it doesn't make as much money. And, you know, that is also vulnerable to trucking because of the nature of how trains were, you know, classified multiple times between, you know, 
be a car might be classified several times on a journey of only a couple hundred miles, you know, as opposed to going like on the West Coast, going from Chicago to um, uh, Los Angeles and being classified. I don't know, maybe once at Kansas City or something. Um, right. Yeah. So you know, the the World War Two sort of granted the the railroads a reprieve if only because like gasoline rationing meant that people had to take the train to get anywhere but of course as soon as world war ii ended in that the gasoline rationing ended and they got back into their cars then passenger numbers fell off a cliff which uh affected the eastern railroads a lot more just because there was more passenger density there and they depended more on passenger service Um, but the 1940s were also i think the last time that railroads did any major maintenance on their networks. Um, and after they, you know, started losing money, they, they stopped doing a lot of the maintenance. Um, and that's one of the pernicious things is that, you know, um, track lasts a long time. So like you, you can not maintain it and it remains serviceable for a while. It's something that has a very long lead time before it goes bad. Uh, but we will, <laughs> we will talk about what happened when, when it really start started getting bad. Um, so yeah, they started cutting maintenance, uh, uh, you know, maintenance and things like that, cutting costs as much as they could. Um, of course the, they weren't allowed in a lot of cases to cut their passenger service. Um, they were ultimately relieved of that burden by Amtrak in 1971, which again, granted them sort of a reprieve in, in a form in that they weren't losing as much money. Um, but, you know, the decline continues. They're still losing um, a lot of money, to be clear. <laughs> a lot right. of money. Yeah. Es- especially in the Northeast, you have the Pennsylvania Railroad and the New York Central, which, uh, you know, try to merge over 10 years and finally eventually merge into Penn Central. And then the ICC is like, oh, yeah, you have to take on the New Haven as well, mm-hmm. um, which they were super excited about because it was a great railroad, very profitable. Everyone was uh, very yeah. happy about the well, deal. And well maintained. Was oh, yeah, very um, well maintained. Right. Certainly wasn't, you know, like half of its business was mandated by the government to exist. Right. Um, but you know, without any just, kind of funding for it. The other good thing about the New Haven Railroad is that they actually completed the electrification from New Haven all the way up to Boston properly and in time. Oh, yeah. my God. I'm still bitter. <laughs> that, Giant asterisk, but yes. <laughs> that, uh, just, that, that railroad, um, I, I imagine under a little bit better management, would not have been in the state it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. At the end of the forties. Well, that was another issue with especially the the Northeast railroads in you know the nineteen sixties was that good management was was in short supply. You know, <laughs> I just like to imagine though that like Stuart Saunders really just wanted to get his hands on the New Haven's custom RDC set. <laughs> just oh, had yeah. to have it. <laughs> the Roger Williams, right? Yeah. <laughs> Great idea. Uh, right. Um, yeah, so they consolidate, you know, and, and then they go bankrupt and then they stay in bankruptcy for a long time, uh, with their, you know, their services mandated by the bankruptcy court to continue. So they're spending all this money, um, that they don't have. And, uh, they and spend then, more then they make time a, in bankruptcy than out of it, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Largest bankruptcy in American history until Enron. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. And and then oh, and they produce a, a very amusing film for uh, legislators about how uh, uh, how much of a terrible state their railroad is in, 
which is a very amusing, I'll put a link in the show, it's a very amusing video to watch because in the first five seconds, a train derails, and then it's just the rest of the um, the video is like a bunch of Penn Central employees talking about how they would do things if they had money. Um, like it's a wonderful showcase of Pennsylvania accents. Right. Oh yes, it Just is. It's various, oh, it's various amazing. Pennsylvania accents. Yeah. yeah. You also get that great shot of like, they just stuck a camera on top of a box car and ran it over some really terrible track. And it looks like, it looks mm. like, um, you're on the set of a, of an episode of star Trek when they're pretending to be hit by phasers. Yeah. It's just shaking constantly. Or you're on like a roller coaster. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the thing is this was, you know, they they really stopped doing a lot of maintenance large scale in like the 40s. And it took about 20 to 30 years for it to uh, become completely terrible because by then the track was very worn. You know, uh, sleepers were broken. You which, know, the, the thing rail bed was, had been washed away partially and all that. So. Which the thing of it is, if that's how bad the Penn Central was, imagine what a state of poor repair all the smaller branch lines are in. Yeah, at this point. Exactly. And most of them are still in that state, to be honest. Well, and oh, what, yeah. what's the statistic they mentioned in that video? Like they had something like uh, I, however many derailments they had per day that they were dealing with. Well, the fact it was that like, it was per day is not a good sign. Right. Yeah. You, you should not be having more than one derailment per day. I'm going to say that's like the target you should aim for. But they were having like in the tens of derailments per day. They invented a wonderful thing called a standing derailment, <laughs> which is where the car would just be parked in the yard and um, the rail would just slowly give way underneath it. Oh, okay. So that's different because yeah. um, not the same thing, but um, the MBTA, I live in Boston now, and the MBTA at one point used the phrase low speed upright derailment to describe what had happened to a commuter rail train. <laughs> that's hmm okay yeah it had jumped a switch if i recall correctly it had jumped some points (laughs) that's that's quite a phrase to use for that (laughs) that's like cop speak but for railroading (laughs) (laughs) some axles became derailed from the right of way there 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 was a a track involved incident Uh, yes (laughs) A, a a a train was removed from the tracks Owing to circumstances involving the engineer. (laughs) A locomotive ceased uh, vital functions. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Yeah. You you know, so of course at this time they're having lots of derailments. All their equipment is breaking down and getting locomotive involved fire. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And of course they can't buy any new locomotive. That's something they mentioned in the video is like, we'd like to buy 20 new locomotives, but the bankruptcy court won't approve it. Um, so eventually Congress comes up with this remedy um, that, that is sort of pushed for by the Association of American Railroads, which is sort of we're going to sort of privatize uh, the Penn Central and See, also some thing. of the other smaller railroads. But we we're almost not had a good idea. We almost had a good idea. Yeah. Um, so I, I've read the book, uh, The Men Who Love Trains, which is about uh, the Penn Central largely and then Conrail. And it um, is interesting the degree to which the Association of American Railroads was very concerned that they were going to just straight up nationalize the railroad and that that would be too successful. And then they'd get other ideas. It so, was that or the other horrible, horrible opportunity uh, or, or horrible outcome, which was actually later in the Conrail era was that um, it, it the only so the first time they tried to privatize Conrail, the only bidder 
who came forth, who A, wanted it, and B, had the money, was Conrail's own unions. <laughs> Wait, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they oh. were like, oh, oh what we, could have been? We, we, can't, yeah. we, can't, we can't do that. Yeah, we can't do worker-owned cooperatives. <laughs> we can't, we can't make this a worker-owned business. We can't right. have any worker-owned railways. Please ignore the Chicago and Northwestern. Can you, can you imagine Conrail plying the the you know the high iron today with like worker-owned painted on the side of the locomotives? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the future we could have had. <laughs> Instead, we just have like ninety-nine different versions of the Genesee and Wyoming paint scheme as they buy every railroad. I that hate it so much. I'm sorry. Can I pop off here for a slight moment? Yes, please. Like, go. here's the thing: I grew up in Rhode Island, so I'm used to seeing the Providence in Worcester. It's not a. It wasn't a pretty uh, paint job. It wasn't a pretty literary, but at least it was distinctive. At least it was something different. The Genesee and Wyoming paints all their locomotives whenever they buy a branch line or some small railway or whatever in the same orange and yellow and black scheme. Like it's fine. Oh, I don't yeah. it, have any, it looks terrible. It like, genuinely looks, it does awful. look bad. Like if it was it makes on it its look own, like safety equipment, a bit, basically. Yeah. if it was like, it's just one railway with that, I'd be like, fine, whatever, do your own thing. Rock on. Because I love when, um, locomotives do their own thing with paint jobs but no they do this across the, they do this across the globe they painted yeah. they bought freightliner in the uk which used to be british rail freight um and they've started painting like class 66s and 60s and i think 60s and you know whatever they inherited which used to be this fairly nice silver and green job no mm -hmm. they're all orange and they have it's the same ugly logo too and it's just yes. i cannot stand it they do it in australia too they bought an australian fruit railroad yeah it's just L it's inescapable and i think it doesn't look bad on like a cab unit because they still have a couple cab units that's the thing i think it, i think they designed this for cab units and like it's fine on a cab unit but it's I do have a cursed thought for you, Liz, which is a oh, G and W owned Intercity One Two Five. Yeah, <laughs> they own some of those. They own some like French electric locomotives on a a short line they own in uh, Belgium. <laughs> oh, really? Oh no, yeah. like, the, the ones with like the weird nose that I like. Yeah, like the 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 Z shaped nose. Yeah. Oh, oh no, oh no. <laughs> I'm gonna Google this now. That's Sorry great. about my keyboard. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. We paint the CC two thousand in the orange paint scheme. <laughs> oh dear. Um gosh, where were we before we went off on the on the Genesee and Wyoming? We should talk about the paint. Oh, that looks terrible. Oh no. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just I'll put the link in uh, the um chat here. Right. Um if I can copy this image. We're yeah, so, you know, the Association of American Railroads gets concerned that Congress is going to go too far and is going to, uh, you know, properly privatize Conrail. So they come up with this alternate scheme, which is like, what if you make it a private company, but give it money and like fund it, but it's like nominally independent? So they do that. Um, they, they come up with the thing called uh, the U.S. Railway Association, which is different from the earlier one in World War I, which did nationalize the railroads um, and then unnationalize them. Uh, but the, the USRA gets the authority to do what the ICC wouldn't allow these railroads to do, which is just mass abandon a bunch of lines that no, were no longer profitable because they had lost the business or ceded the business to trucking, which was... Uh, becoming more and more popular at this time. Yes. And so 
So the USRA basically, you know, cuts the the whole system of Penn Central and some of the other smaller lines like the Reading and what this what is it the Central of New Jersey and understand the whole thing was done in like one afternoon by a couple of Penn Central head honchos with an orange marker. Yeah, basically. Um, <laughs> That's definitely what yeah, the book gives out. you the impression is that, yeah, they're just like, you know, going at a map with a highlighter, like, eh, maybe not this one. And then there's also people that are like arguing, you know, to keep service to their district. You it's know? all very sykes agreement, yeah. isn't it? Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. We're going to draw a line in the desert, ignoring, you know, <laughs> all differences. <laughs> Um, but they do they do that and they constitute Conrail, which which takes over operations um, and it is able to eventually um, claw back to profitability, um, w- at which point, of course, everyone is like, OK, we should privatize this now because we've you know, we don't want it to get too successful again. Um, we should we should divvy it up. Um, Can't let them and, get ideas. Right. Yeah. And they sell off the shares. Uh, um, the U.S. government sells off its shares, so Conrail technically becomes an independent co- uh, company. I almost said country. <laughs> 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 that would be something. Um, and all this time, you know, the, the nice thing about the infusion of um, of the capital from the U.S. government is that it did allow Conrail to actually maintain, you know, uh, the rails that it had um, and, you know, buy new locomotives and things like that. Um, Although I will never forgive Conrail for um, deciding that electric freight was not worth its time anymore. That That was was kind of Amtrak's decision. That was, yeah. (laughs) uh, Because they charge usurious rates for... uh, access to the uh, electricity in their in their mains (laughs) right yeah and that was as part of the creation of conrail amtrak was given the northeast corridor you know taking it from uh penn central and so then if conrail wanted to use it they were gonna have to pay amtrak for it and amtrak you know both of them are struggling to be profitable so amtrak was obviously trying to get its um you know part of the bargain the irony is at this point is that it's basically two parts of the government giving each other money. Um, <laughs> yes. So, you know, again, this is like we could have had a more cohesive solution here if they had thought about it for more than like 15 minutes, but that wasn't really there. But instead, thing. we gave a lot of accountants a lot of headaches. Well, we also gave them a lot of jobs. So, oh, okay. You know, All right. It's, yes. it's hard to say if it was good or bad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> As always, it's a jobs program accidentally. Yeah, well, yeah, it's a jobs program for consultants, basically. That's what all of these things are, you know, instead of doing like, admittedly, it's complicated to say we're going to nationalize a railroad, but it's it's slightly less complicated than saying, okay, we're going to like constitute a new railroad, but also like figure out how to divvy it up and then have to negotiate, you know, all these different rates on these tracks that we used to own, but don't anymore. And, you know, interchange and all the other stuff with all the other railroads back and forth at like Chicago. Um, it's great. It's we love the system that we have. Um, and it works. It works wonderfully, obviously, which is why we're now doing precision scheduled railroading. Um, but yeah, so, you know, um, Conrail happens. Conrail shares get sold off. Um, and then eventually in the 1990s, um, CSX and Norfolk Southern buy Conrail together and basically undo the Penn Central merger. 
um, finally after like, uh, you know, 40 years of that existing, um, which made a lot of people at Conrail very mad. Um, and there are several chapters of the book, The Men Who Love Trains, which is basically about how mad the board of Conrail was at the idea of it being split up, that they basically incited a bidding war between <laughs> CSX and Norfolk Southern, um, which would then come back to haunt, especially CSX, but also well, the Norfolk which the Southern. Which the thing of it is, these are already like North, Norfolk Southern is already a merger of what, three different railroads and CSX is just seven. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is. Okay. It, it's interesting how how close the uh, modern Eastern Railroad combinations are to sort of the communities of interest they call them that existed in the uh, early 19th century. I mean, the Pennsylvania Railroad and the Norfolk and Western were, you know, for for all intents and purposes, uh, operated as the same railroad, and now under under Norfolk Southern, they are um, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Jesse the, system had been assembling itself into CSX for a while before it became CSX. Yeah. yeah, that's the irony of it is that the Norfolk and Western was sort of a subsidiary of the Pennsylvania Railroad, and now it it owns what used to be the Pennsylvania Railroad, you know, and and its trackage at this point. So there's something poetic about that, I guess. But it's yeah, it's also during this time, you know, um, especially after Conrail that. Um, they start doing railroad deregulation um, because we had started doing deregulation with the airlines and we thought that we would do railroads next. So we, we start um, loosening the rules on, you know, being able to um, charge higher rates for things and being able to abandon <laughs> lines and all that. Yeah. Um, and basically that just gives the railroads permission to abandon a bunch of lines that they don't think are, you know, profitable enough. And so they seed a lot more of their, you know, market share to trucking, um, which obviously has no consequences of any kind for, you know, the climate or anything like that. None whatsoever. Um, no issues. Yeah. No, no issues, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, um, it continues eventually with, um, you know, eventually the ICC is just completely disestablished and its its functions are divided up amongst some successor bodies which have less power, um, like the Surface Transportation Board and the Federal Railroad Administration. Although they do still make a lot of dumb decisions. This is the thing is like, I don't know that the, the regulation of railroads in this country has ever been, um, you know, an unalloyed good. They're always making some dumb decisions, you know, like until yes. recently we had the rules about passenger car strength that meant that our oh passenger rail cars had to be way more heavy and expensive than like in Europe or whatever. And all, you know, things like that, silly things like that, um, that just sort of set us back in, in that way. You know, in Europe, they discovered this thing called the crumple zone. And then we were like, you've done what now? That sounds weird. I was about to say, I, I want good American engineering. Right. Uh, <laughs> just make it stronger. I'm I'm yeah. I'm channeling Alice. Just make it stronger. Right. <laughs> that, that is literally what they did though. So I mean that is that was Bud's whole thing. So, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> Who's to save was actually bad because we did get mm. Bud out of it. Um yeah, but then, you know, uh, also at this time, you know, with the reduced sort of regulation, um railroads start consolidating. And so you get um the Southern Pacific tries to merge with the Santa Fe. Um, it gets blocked, but not before giving us a very amusing paint scheme. That yeah, we they, they started yes. painting before they actually uh, had the approval. And uh, whoops. 
Yeah, SPF stands for SPSF stands for shouldn't paint so fast. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the Kodachrome. I have to admit, I think it's it's one of my yeah. favorites. Um, the Santa Fe would then go on to merge with the Bo- Burlington Northern, which itself was a merger of the Burlington route and the what is it the the Great Northern? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you know lots of plenty of other consolidation. The UP the Union Pacific buys the Southern Pacific. Um, you know, the, the Chessie system and, uh, um, the seaboard coastline merge and form CSX, uh, the Norfolk and Western and the Southern railway merge and become Norfolk Southern. Um, and then at some point, eventually the, uh, the, the, um, surface transportation board basically declares that enough is enough. Um, and, if you're going to merge anymore, you have to prove that it's not going to like harm service levels. Um, with one exception, that being uh, any railroad can acquire the Kansas City Southern because it's small. Um, so you can right. have that one if you want. Um, and interestingly, they haven't gotten around to doing that until literally this year. Uh, when the <laughs> and now Canadian- two Canadians are fighting for it. Yeah, the Canadian yes. Pacific announced that they were going to buy the Kansas City Southern and then the Canadian National decided that they were going to actually buy the Kansas City Southern, um, which I think is a bit of a spoil sport activity because the whole reason that the Canadian Pacific wants the Kansas City Southern is because the Canadian Pacific has a transcontinental route through Canada from east to west. The Kansas City Southern gets them a north-south route to the Gulf. The Canadian National already has that because they bought the Illinois Central, which already had the Gulf route. And now they want a second one, which seems a little greedy to me. I think they should let their, you know, their, their Canadian brethren have the Kansas city Southern, but, but Although it would that- be entertaining to get the, uh, national de Mexico back, but it'll be the Canadian national. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> uh- <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I do admire that when Kansas city That's Southern, ex- rail. right. When Kansas city Southern expanded to Mexico by buying, you know, parts of the former Nacional de Mexico, they just renamed it the Kansas city Southern de Mexico. Yes. <laughs> it's like, wow, thanks for, you really put in the effort there. I'm sure yeah, you try everyone in your operations down there feels really loved and appreciated, <laughs> but uh, no, no, it'll be great if we have the Canadian Nacional de Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be great eventually for when that when both Mexico and Canada decide to embargo us, and so they just ship directly through the U.S. from Mexico <laughs> to Canada. Yeah, oh, like like, like the uh, like the one road you're allowed to take from Berlin through East Germany back to West Germany. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> just straight through. You know, no stop. You have to show your papers, but that's yes. it. <laughs> um. Yes one one train direct from Monterey to Montreal. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, via via rail's long haul route to Cancun. <laughs> How about those burritos, eh? <laughs> <laughs> burritos and beaver tails. You love yeah. to see it. I'm, I'm picturing like one of those one of those uh, doner kebab shops in Halifax, and uh, you know a, a taco joint from Mexico just meeting in the middle and just having a great exchange of ideas. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'm thinking the you know the onboard cafe car serves Tim Hortons coffee and also horchata. Ooh, <laughs> ooh. Mm. I know what I'd pick. 
You that's know. giving them. That's giving them too much credit. They're not going to run passenger trains. No, yeah. absolutely not. <laughs> it'll the, no. They'll do like one. Like it'll be a one in a week, and it'll be like the new, like the reboot Orient Express that runs across half of Europe for ludicrous amounts of money. Right. Well, I say I think I think the Canadian National has already tried to destroy Via numerous times. So yes, yeah, yeah, constantly. The the, the record is not. He's great still that, trying. I think we should say. Yeah, I was gonna say you know, um, and Mexico, succeeding. Yeah, it's right. <laughs> yeah, Me- Mexico probably the, the worst country in North America for passenger service because they just don't have any anymore. Right. But then yes. it's Canada who has somehow managed to do Amtrak, but worse. Uh, well, as I say, as much as I admire them keeping the old park cars in service, the old stream streamliner sets when are they going to replace the streamliners i don't know there's there's nothing you can replace those with i know yeah. right <laughs> oh right because uh, they, they can't even buy local because alstom owns bombardier i mean uh, yeah alstom owns bombardier now yeah. they're buying they're buying new cars from siemens for the uh the the corridor services right. i don't think you i there's no one who's going to make you a new dome car though no <laughs> no because yeah, colorado just don't make those anymore <laughs> We d- we don't make anything in this country anymore. Yeah. Least of least of all dome cars. <laughs> oh, that's weird. I just I was just finished watching season two of The Wire. <laughs> yeah. Someone might tell you, well, you don't technically need a dome car. I'm pretty sure on like the uh, the supercontinental or the Canadian or whatever it is, you need right. a dome car. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if, they if built Rockies. They, you need a dome car. And I mean, they just... built those superliners with the windows in the roof for a reason. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah, those are nice. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, you, you don't need a dome car on the corridor service because, like, wh- what are you, you gonna see? Yeah, you're like, oh wow, it's Oshawa, you know, like <laughs> it's not exciting. But oh, look, it's the bottom of Montreal Central Station. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sometimes I think about the LRC and how they put an extremely old diesel engine in that for the for the time, and now you know. <laughs> Yeah, it was some old. Um, an old it was an Alco, Alco right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they put, there they was put... that. I don't know which is more cursed: the LRC or the fact that they bought what were going to be the um, Eurostar sleeper service carriages for mm. corridor service. Mm-hmm. They've tried a lot to make corridor service work, and it's sort of sad. Have they tried uh, electricity? Yes. No, no. no instead, they did the turbo train for a while, but it turns out that that was very unreliable, as mm. you might expect. Hmm. hmm. Much to think about. For first generation gas turbines in a train, what could go wrong? (laughs) The New Haven learned that lesson too. (laughs) Yes, they did. Well, so did Amtrak. Yeah. (laughs) You did get good photos out of it though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah. So eventually in the 90s, you have, you know, CSX. And and one of the things that I want to talk about is CSX under the tenure of Jon Snow. Uh, who is more one. famous for being George W. Bush's Treasury Secretary? Um, so obviously a sterling reputation to begin with. Um, Wait, really? Yes, I missed that. I I didn't think they were the same one. They uh. they are indeed. Wow. <laughs> but, but before I he screwed knew him up from television, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but before he screwed up the national finances, he went and screwed up CSX first. Um, some some great passages from uh, the men who love trains. Basically, CSX was trying to diversify um, in in the late eighties, early nineties. So they acquired um, a bun- They acquired uh, an intermodal shipping company, Sealand, and, and made it CSX Intermodal. Um, and they acquired the um, what is it, the Texas Gas Company, 
getting into the oil business, which is always a stable investment. Um, I, I to was do. about to say that's that's never heard a railroad before. No, um, right? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so yeah, so they they took on all of these things, and then you got Jin, then you get John Snow in a guy who's who's not a railroad guy. He's just a finances guy, and his opinion uh or, or you know his feeling on the railroad is that um basically you know everything's going well when expenses are low and when expenses are high that means things are bad which is some, some old grizzled railroad guy like you know nothing john snow right. <laughs> 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 I'm gonna say, like, like this mentality doesn't work for railroads because they own a massive amount of stuff you know, tracks, equipment, <laughs> locomotives, etc. that like, they're going to cost money. But his opinion is, you're, you know, his philosophy on this is like, we should not be spending any money, you know, minimal amount of money on things like maintenance and new locomotives and, you know, basically keeping everything in good repair um, and, you know, making the shippers happy as customers. Um so, that has been like my idea to disrupt the railroad industry for a long time mm. is if you could come in and uh, deliver merchandise on time and undamaged. Interesting thought. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, for, for, uh, someone, if you're at a class one railroad, phone me up. I, we can mm. develop this. Right, yeah. uh, <laughs> I could put together a deck for you. And- yeah. <laughs> 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 okay, the customer ships 268 tons of coal, and we deliver 268 tons of coal. <laughs> what? <laughs> the guy has a stroke. <laughs> Wait, uh, so you're saying the boxcar full of porcelain should arrive with the porcelain intact? Hmm. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Fancy. <laughs> what shipping, a ridiculous concept. Shipping a bunch of fragile items and having them all break in transit and then insisting it's sort of a, you know, a kind of art, you know. Well, now, now you can Kintsugi it. Now you can. You right. Know. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, you, you don't increase understand. the value. It's called this Wabi is, Sabi. This, this is a this is a piece of performance art that we're doing, actually. <laughs> <laughs> that is what that's what american railroading is yeah yeah so, <laughs> selling selling a boxcar full of broken porcelain as an nft no no, no it wouldn't be an nft it would be a loot crate come on uh mm, yeah that's true non-fungible tank car is that anything Ooh. non-fungible uh, tank tainer mm. uh, oh god <laughs> um but yeah so so john snow first he becomes appointed president of csx transportation which is the rail subsidiary of csx it says immediately snow began cutting costs when the time came out to lay out next year's budget, he slashed impro- investment in improvements in tracks and yards by $226 million, or nearly 42%. Capital improvements have to- had totaled 14.7% of operating revenues in 1986, but for 1987, they equaled less than 9%. Um, and this is, I feel like, just part of the grand American tradition of building things and then not maintaining them, which is a thing that we just love to do in this country. Um, because it doesn't require any effort. And that's like, as a country, we've just decided that effort is not a thing we want to do anymore. Listen, if, if it requires effort or you can't put out a sexy press release about it, what's the point? Right. Yeah. You know, nobody, this is the thing. <laughs> I, at work recently, we've been doing these, these God awful training things. Um, and there was this one, the first training was about creating 
mountaintop experiences. And they had us watch this what? video and the, what the fuck in this is a- Sorry, or in this on. in this video, the the guy in the video says, you know, you know, no one, uh, uh, you know, no one really is like, you know, become super happy because you like fill the pothole. You know, you have to like build something new and exciting or whatever. And it's like, no, I don't, I don't know. I'm here in Michigan. People are very excited when you fill potholes. It's <laughs> I was about to say, f- filling potholes is like a surefire like way to win the hearts and minds of people. Well, there I, was that one uh, delegate in Virginia who basically ran on I, Danica Rome, who basically ran on "I will fix this road in in my district, which sucks," and she got elected. Yeah. Yeah, literally our governor here in Michigan ran on the platform of fix the damn roads and got elected. Now, has she done that? No, uh, but you know. Um, we could it was argue. Also, over I how- think how Lee Carter got elected, also in Virginia. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was actually. Yeah, <laughs> right. Having but the, driven you know, in Virginia, I can see why. Yeah, <laughs> the the philosophy is that like you have to make, um, you know, it's this sort of toxic mentality that we have now, where like every product has to blow the user's mind. It can't just be like a run of the mill experience, right? So it's like, oh, you can't just patch potholes. You need to like provide you know, users like something cool and amazing, which is basically what we do. Like instead of maintaining our current, you know, road infrastructure, whatever we build new roads, because well, that's exciting. That- I, I can do you one better than fixed than patching the pothole. I'll mm. repave the whole damn road. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, this is the thing, you know, the politicians don't want to do it unless they can cut a ribbon and no one's cutting a ribbon for filling some potholes. Right. Perhaps we true. should. Maybe that would be a way to get that to work. The but. thing that gets me about this mindset, too, is like if you're the if you're the worker who fills the pothole and I'm assuming you have a reasonable amount of pride in your job doing fixing potholes. How does it feel for someone to say this sort of thing about, you know, how it's not um, people don't appreciate what you do? Like, what what's what the hell? Yeah, I, I, don't I know. work in IT, and w- I, most of what I do is fix infrastructure, which is you know it's, it's analogous, and I feel pretty good yeah. about that. Well, you know, I'm in my notice period for that company now, so oh, enough well, that's said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're on Aloha time, right? Yeah. So it, then it says, in two years after taking over rail operations, snow cut track maintenance costs by four per six, four point six percent, reduced the expense of train operations by eleven point four percent, and slashed yard costs by nearly twenty six percent. In the process, they cut the average monthly workforce by nineteen percent. So just sending people packing because we love to do that as well. Um, and all of this gets him appointed as CEO of CSX proper, um, rewarded for his, you know, excellent managerial instincts. Um, and it says he had no day-to-day experience with railroads or with the business of managing them. His personality was foreign to rail operations. Um, Snow was the quintessential politician who avoided controversy. Snow showed neither love nor instinct for railroading, and it was obvious that his greatest ambition in life was not to run a company, but to hold a cabinet post back in Washington. So... Exactly the sort of guy that you yeah. that you want running a railroad. Um, oh, yeah. he, he basically delegated everything um, and, you know, basically listened only to the finance guys when they would come and complain that people were spending too much money. Um, but then, you know, uh, CSX has a stagnant stock price. They start getting worried because at this time in the 80s, leveraged buyouts are a thing. Those are the 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 business fad of the time, sort of like SPACs these days, I feel like. You know, where it's just like everyone was doing leveraged buyouts. Um, basically, you know, you buy the company uh, with a you know a massive group of investors. You come and you buy the company, then you saddle it with debt, and then you uh, basically sell off all its assets to pay back the debt. 
And from that, you get massive profits, uh, which it's we love. It's an entertaining thing to do with a railroad, of course, because if someone successfully pulled that off, uh, stuff would stop showing up in grocery stores. Right, exactly, <laughs> yeah. But see, it's okay, because the grocery store itself is also under an LBO and is about to go under, so it's fine. Uh, mm, I yeah. see, okay. <laughs> It says of Snow, he delegated his authority, and as one officer later told the Washington Post, he viewed everything from 44,000 feet. Up there, it's hard to see what's going on down on the system, and he monitored by watching the budget, holding back money for capital improvements, and pressuring everyone to keep costs down. If expenses went up, he deemed the railroad to have problems, but if they stayed down, he seemed to assume everything was running smoothly. This approach appeared all the more justified because railroad operating managers traditionally were viewed by the headquarters staff as wanting to gold plate their properties <laughs> which is very amusing given the state of rail infrastructure at this time yeah like, especially on csx yeah, yeah. Th they were just trying to get like a shipment of rail ties to replace some that were like rotted away at this point you know but says, oh do you want a gold toilet too <laughs> right exactly <laughs> <laughs> well, meanwhile, over at the Norfolk Southern, you know, at the same time, you have the headquarters going like, you know, what our engineers want a toilet in the locomotive. What's next? Preposterous. Uh, well, the Canadians have coffee pots in their locomotives. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's the other thing about the Norfolk Southern is that they are perhaps the stingiest railroad in terms of like amenities they provide to their employees. They they fought installing toilets in their locomotives for the longest time. They only gave up when they had to like institute some sort of thing to make sure that like employees were not disposing of waste improperly. So they'd give you like a waste bag and then you had to return it at the end of your, um, you know, your route. And uh, yeah. uh, eventually they got tired of trying to keep track of this, as you might imagine. <laughs> and so they just installed toilets and, and caved. <laughs> well, they don't maintain the toilets, though. Most people are still going to you know, stop the locomotive at a railroad crossing that is a gas station next to it. And right. The toilet exactly. in there. Something yeah. to get a sub into Wawa while you're at it. Why not? Yeah. Well, because I don't think the Norfolk Southern puts proper fridges in their in their locomotives either. I think they just have like a chill box still. I might oh, be right wrong on. about that, but Ugh. yeah. You know, a lot of other ones have mini fridges, so yeah. I'm still mad that they haven't put a working mini fridge or toilet into Train Sim World 2. I need that for <laughs> my immersion. At the very least, put in a wide lift Gatorade bottle. Come on. Right. Well, you know, they should have like, okay, you know, like uh, turn the generator field switch on, release the brakes, uh, go take a shit. Uh. Well, see, this is the thing, though, because like Euro Truck Sim 2 requires you to take rest stops. And I presume that involves feeding yourself and using the toilets. <laughs> right. So, so come on. Yeah. Come on. Ad adding the bladder functions from Death Stranding to Train Sim World 2. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that would be something. <laughs> It says the men at the top of CSX lacked any feeling for what a good operating department needed if it were to make itself truly efficient. Over the years, as CSX's various predecessor railroads had merged together, nothing had been done to meld their properties. For example, CSX, CSX had never invested in a standardized signal system. Um, and I, indeed, I believe they are Still only happens. now beginning to think about correcting that. Oh, are they? And yeah. There's a lot of different types of signals on CSX. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is really just like, yeah, they, they combined a bunch of railroads and at no point did they think, how do we put these together? Which you think they would have learned from the Penn Central to not do that, but I, Well, you see, know. my thing has been, why isn't there like a national standard? Hmm. 
Well, because uh, no one's thought to do that yet. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I think the thing was, you know, when railroads were originally founded back in the 1800s, we were extremely laissez-faire. And so we were like, yeah, you know, do whatever, you know, you own the infrastructure. So who cares? And then later on, we realized that that might not be the wisest idea. <laughs> But it was too late to do anything about it. That's a sh- what a shame that we built all of the infrastructure in that era. R- yeah, <laughs> haven't upgraded it since. I love driving under railroad overpasses that say 1912 on them. That gives me confidence. <laughs> oh, that's a newer one, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> I'm thinking that there's one Although, in Edison. There's one in Edison, New Jersey, that is so clearly old. And like, if, if you if your car is if well, car if your truck is too tall, it's not as it's not like the 11 foot eight one, but it is like it. I feel uncomfortable going under it when I lived there. Mm-hmm. I forget yeah. what year it was from, but it's definitely like it was definitely before World War One. We have some around here that are <laughs> narrow enough that the center line on the road disappears as you go through the underpass. Oh, that's always good. That's yeah. always yeah. good. Uh, although, you know, I think I would trust an underpass from like 1912 more than I would trust an underpass that was labeled like 1981, you know? Yeah. yeah. If something were going to go wrong with it, it would have already gone wrong. Exactly. Right. Well, and I also think back in 1912, they weren't cheaping out on like concrete at that point, you know, could be wrong, but <laughs> uh, well, they were just using a lot of it. So it didn't matter. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so then CSX gets a new operations guy and it says he had found that CSX's fleet of coal hoppers was a shambles, many with holes in their sides and bottoms. <laughs> Ironically, the hoppers carried CSX's core commodity, one that brought in one of the railroad's highest yields and comprised its biggest revenue base. Mine owners were complaining, threatening to cut off their shipments and begging him to step in and get money to repair them. The bean counters resisted, saying the return on investment would not be high enough. Uh, he prevailed when he pointed out that the alternative would be no coal business. <laughs> <laughs> just a toxic mentality. This is the thing. The death knell for a company, I feel, is when the bean counters get any sort of authority because they Mm -hmm. just, you know, it's like, oh, you want to spend money? No, we can't be spending any kind of money. Well, it's part of a, you know, a toxic mentality that's like, well, this company exists to make money. And it's like, well, if we wanted to, you know, make a lot of money, we wouldn't be in the railroad industry. (laughs) Right. We'd be a bank, obviously. Yeah. A bank, yeah. <laughs> we'd be, we'd be mining Bitcoin. <laughs> Although this was around the same time CSX absorbed the Georgia Railroad and Bank, right? It was uh, yeah. a fun one, which yeah. had a special clause in its charter from the state of Georgia that said, "Um, well, as long as you provide some essential passenger services, you can also operate a tax-free bank." <laughs> now oh, that's, that's a beautiful. sweet deal. That's yeah. beautiful. <laughs> I can see why they scoop that one up. Yeah. <laughs> it says, uh, you know, um, so eventually Snow uh, just runs off sort of on a whim to go be Treasury Secretary. And the book sums up his tenure by saying, by the time Snow departed, CSX had been reduced from a multimodal global distribution system to a regional railroad. Its debt had nearly tripled since 1995, the year before the merger battle over Conrail had erupted, growing so huge it exceeded shareholders' equity. In those eight years, CSX's interest payments had shot up 64% while its dividends had fallen at almost the same rate, and its stock was selling for less than it had before the merger battle. And they would go on paying off the cost of the debt they incurred to buy part of Conrail and also all of the deferred maintenance that they then finally had to do 
um, basically until E. Hunter Harrison comes along and does PSR and sort of gets things back on track. As oh, yeah. To, to be clear to the listeners, this is all pre-PSR, which is what we're here to talk about. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, finally, we get to when PSR starts to happen, you know, so so uh, uh, E. Hunter Harrison goes to the Illinois Central, uh, which is a regional railroad, and he basically, you know, puts it back into shape by coming up with PSR there, um, and the playbook is successful. So then uh, the Canadian National is like, oh, that's neat, and buys the, the Illinois Central in 1999. Uh, Harrison becomes the CEO of the Canadian National does PSR there um, in 2009. Uh, he leaves CN. Um, and then three years later, Bill Ackman uh, and Pershing Square Capital Management buy a bunch of shares of Canadian Pacific and then get uh, Hunter Harrison installed as CEO there. And so then he does PSR there. And then in 2017, another activist investor firm does the same thing at CSX and uh, Hunter Harrison becomes the CEO of CSX. Um, where Harrison implemented, uh, as Aaron Gordon says, a mega PSR. He got rid of 900 locomotives, 26,000 wagons, and aimed to slash the 31,000-person workforce by a third. Um, but before he could do that, he dies of emphysema. Um, although they continue the program in earnest um, after his death. Um, and uh, it starts to have consequences. Um, and one of the consequences that uh, Aaron... Aaron Gordon talks about in his article is um, the increased frequency of derailments um, because basically PSR um, requires you to run a railroad at like the ragged edge of speed and safety. Um, uh, It says here, freight train derailments are surprisingly common. In 2019, railroads reported 341 derailments on mainline track, meaning the parts of the rail system not in yards or other work areas. Of those 341 derailments, 24 were freight trains carrying 159 cars of hazardous material. Um, And it's worth noting that uh, rail is one of the most popular, if not the most popular way of transporting lots of hazardous materials, uh, such as, you know, explosive or highly flammable hydrocarbons. Yes. um, and also lots of uh, fun toxic gases like styrene and chlorine gas. All ma- yeah, all manner of weird chemicals that you don't want to be breathing. Mm-hmm. And so you can see or that uh, it's a great idea to just, um, you know, have the companies that transport these these uh, materials um, do so at like the lowest cost, highest speed and thinnest margin of safety, you know, ever in their history. And, um, and the annoying thing is, you know, this this is all stuff which is kind of in in contrast to the theory of precision scheduled railroading right mm-hmm. because if in theory you know you're running trains faster you're running longer trains you're moving more stuff with less equipment right, right. and and you know you're supposed to be increasing the amount of traffic you can handle as well um and and what psr has largely been used for is you know um uh, they ha- handle the same amount of traffic and they use it as an excuse to cut costs. They don't actually do a lot of the PSR stuff. And I've, I've seen some of the effects of PSR on the CSX main line right here through Philly. I mean, the trains move a lot quicker than they used to, and they are a lot longer, but you know, um, I've also seen CSX put a train on the ground right next to uh children's hospital. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there are <laughs> <laughs> there are some risks. 
Um, so uh, uh, the derailment that um, uh, uh, Aaron Gordon calls attention to was in Hindman, Pennsylvania. Uh, 33 cars and a 178-car freight train derailed, uh, and an entire town had to be evacuated. Um, it did no crash one- into a house, literally. Yeah, no one was hurt, but the town was evacuated because there was molten asphalt in some of the cars that derailed, uh, which can create an explosive mixture with air. (laughs) So um, it it seems like we narrowly avoided a a Lock Megantique situation in Pennsylvania in this case. So I I can't imagine the asphalt would have exploded that badly. (laughs) Um, Just, Just a minor explosion. Be a little explosion, not a big one. Just enough that you don't want to be near it. Right. <laughs> um, it says, uh, Greg Regan, the president of the Transportation Trades Department, a labor organization consisting of 33 transportation unit- unions, says that these are red flags, these increasing derailments. If you have increases in the less significant or catastrophic derailments, it reflects a degrading safety culture. Um, and basically, they, uh, a couple people are pointing to this as sort of you know, warning signs before, quote unquote, the big one, which is, you know, a derailment so big and catastrophic that regulators and legislators are forced to take notice on the scale of something like Lock Megantique, uh, which, of course, Justin, you've done an episode of Well, There's Your Problem on. Yes. Um, which was, do you, do you want to summarize the Lock Megantique disaster briefly? <laughs> it was one of our early ones. It was, um, that was a, uh, a freight train had been was on a this it's sort of I don't want to quite say fly by night short line, but pretty damn <laughs> close to that. Right. Um, they were handling a crude oil train through uh, Quebec, um, and they were running on one man crews, um, and they they maintained their equipment so poorly that one of the locomotives caught fire, um, and. You know, one of the issues was that the uh, the engineer wasn't really able to stay with the equipment, mm-hmm. um, which at some point uh, started rolling away on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, full of back and crude oil. And it crashed into the town of Lac Megantique uh, and uh, ob- obliterated it. Just, you know, yeah, gone. <laughs> Sort of the Boston molasses flood, but if it was also on fire. Yes. Yeah, yeah. and it was also oil instead of molasses. Right. <laughs> um, so th- that's the sort of thing that uh, people are raising alarm bells about. Um, you know, the uh, uh, so says, according to interviews with current and former rail workers, union officials, and independent experts, these derailments and others like it are the all-too-predictable result of nearly all major freight rail companies adopting precision-scheduled railroading. Proponents of PSR say it is about leveraging modern technology to improve efficiency. <laughs> there's there's that word again, Ross. <laughs> Le- yeah, efficiency. and lever- I don't like efficiency. I don't like leveraging either because it's... I, one of my favorite activities terms. that I like to do in my private time is to leverage efficiency. Is that what we're calling it nowadays? <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but those who work on the railroads every day, and why would we listen to them, <laughs> say it is little more than an, a euphemism for draconian cost cutting in order to achieve an arbitrary metric that pleases shareholders. That metric called an operating ratio must get below 60%, which means only 60% of every dollar earned goes towards actually running the railroads. The rest can go towards executive pay and shareholder dividends. 
all but one of the seven so-called class one railroad companies, which account for 94% of the freight rail industry's revenue, have explicitly adopted some form of PSR. Which one is someone that hasn't? The BNSF. Has yes. not really? The it. one that Buffett owns. Yes, oh, yeah. indeed. <laughs> Would not expect that at all. Yeah. <laughs> He, yeah, it's because they has, have a they have a Western railroad, and so they basically have always been doing PSR. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, <laughs> right. that's there. That's true. They yeah, their thing is like we sort of do this anyway. They don't do of. anything east yeah. of Chicago, do they? Yeah, right. A uh, little bit. Little bit, um, little bit. Depends on how you define east of Chicago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, as Aaron Gordon notes, uh, you know, the, it's a big deal because freight railroads, you know, they own their own infrastructure. And so they get to make decisions about how much money to spend or not spend maintaining them. And so, you know, that that then, um, you know, uh, has results or, you know, uh, consequences for the communities that railroads pass through, uh, bringing, you know, massive long trains of hazardous material and whatever, a long track that's poorly maintained. And then, you know, derailing some tank cars into a house, for example. Um, it says increasingly railroads are choosing to boost profits and pay shareholders rather than invest in safety. Um, among the changes brought about by PSR, workers now have to inspect many multiple more rail cars in a fraction of the time, barely giving them enough time to walk the entire train. Trains are longer than they used to be and assembled haphazardly with little thought as to where the heavy and empty cars should go to avoid derailments because it would keep the train in the yard longer. Yeah, Shops- this is one of the things that you put in the notes that you haven't gotten to yet. Like, one mm-hmm. of the reasons that we had this derailment is Hyman is because you had the heavy cars that were still full in the wrong part of the train and it played with the slack in the braking system. Yeah. That's that's the fun part of, you know, American railroading is like the coupling systems that we use that allow a whole bunch of slack. And so if you put the cars in the train the wrong way, uh, you can basically have the big heavy cars at the end of the train just knock the light cars at the front of the train off the track. Yes. This is supposed uh, to be mitigated through stuff like uh, distributed power, which is where you stick locomotives in the middle of the train. Right. But I guess if you have a problem with that, uh, it's not good. Indeed. It also says shops and yards that used to perform inspections along routes have been closed, meaning there are fewer inspection points. Routes have been changed, so cars stop for inspection less frequently. Maintenance is deferred as long as possible. Uh, and knowledgeable and safety conscious supervisors have been replaced by businessmen who cultivate a culture of fear and intimidation around reporting unsafe equipment. Uh, doing so would keep the train in the yard longer, hurting the metrics on which supervisors are graded. Um, th- this is remarkable because this is just how everything is these days. As as you do on your program, Justin, the the safety third segment, which yeah. you know, brings to light. Um, you know, a lot of every company likes to say, oh, you know, call this number to report something unsafe. Um, and that number usually goes to like a voicemail box that you know, someone full. lost the password yes. to in 1996. <laughs> um, it says, while there are strict federal rules governing how often the people running the trains must rest to minimize accidents, the workers performing inspections do not have such rules and have been pushed to compensate for mass layoffs by working 16 hours per shift or more, discouraged from taking lunch breaks, and sometimes required to work overtime or risk losing their jobs, um, which I can only assume is a tactic that the rail industry learned from Amazon um, or you know similar. <laughs> Maybe it was the other well, way around. 
in fairness, uh, when you're working overtime at the railroad, you are making a lot of money. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> it is still a union job. So yeah. To a person, more than a dozen workers and union officials Motherboard spoke to warned that railroads are courting disaster. Unless something is done to hinder these dangerous practices, derailments like Heinemann will look trivial in comparison to the big one, quote unquote, a disaster so bad it will plaster the news and snap Congress and regulators into action. Railroads haul the most dangerous gases in the world, one veteran worker told Motherboard. I do think it's a matter of time. There's going to be a freight car that hasn't been inspected in 90,000 miles that comes off the track as it goes off the track and slams into other cars into a tank car and either explodes or leaks poisonous gas out. It's going to take something like that and a lot of deaths, and then all of a sudden somebody's going to care. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, and then one of the presidents of the union says it's going to end up like Boeing, uh, which I'm sure the Boeing folks really love. Um, oh well, know, yeah. Name recognition in, <laughs> you know, because it's it's it, it's annoying. It's 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 annoying reading all this because like the goals here, you know, I think of getting trains in and out of yards more quickly and keeping trains moving. Those are good things which the railroad should be doing. Mm-hmm. But the idea that you're going to uh, do this by, I don't know, threatening the employees if they don't, you know. Uh, you don't say uh, cut corners, but you imply they need to cut corners. This right. is a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. And there's a really, really good anecdote in here about Norfolk Southern, which it says used to be one of the safest railroads in the company, won an industry award for the safest class one railroad 20 years in a row until it was discontinued in 2012. <laughs> there, there was a reason why they got discontinued that award. <laughs> <laughs> Safety was always the highest priority, workers told Motherboard, but that started to change when the Norfolk Southern implemented PSR. In early February 2019, they announced they would implement its own version of PSR. Um, They announced they would lower its operating ratio by about 5% in two years and reduce its workforce by 3,000 people. Um, As an example, several workers told Motherboard about car inspections. When a freight train comes into a yard, FRA regulations require the cars be inspected with dozens of different inspection points per car to make sure the freight was up for another punishing run on the rails. When these workers first started years or even decades ago, there was no set rule about how long these inspections should take because cars are different lengths and designs vary with some having more inspection points than others. But as a rule of thumb, car men generally estimated it would take three minutes per car. About five years ago, NS management mandated inspections take no more than two and a half minutes per car. But in the past two years, they've mandated they spend no more than two minutes per car, then 1.8, then 1.5. Now it's 1.4 minutes per car. Oh, look, Taylorism. Barely giving workers any time to stop and look at the car they're supposedly inspecting, which can be up to 100 feet in length. (laughs) Yeah, I was about to say, if you get like a big auto rack or something like that, I I think that's... um, I don't think you can even walk around a car in one point. No, I, yeah. I, I don't let know alone do that. Inspect in it. Shape, yeah. Thanks to staff cuts, rail yard closures and operation consolidation workers that used to inspect perhaps 300 cars a day are now inspecting three or four times that company notices and presentations that used to highlight the importance of safety. Now talk about efficiency in one bulletin board material. Safety was listed as the fourth most important thing behind measures like reducing car dwell time and getting trains back on the rails. The workers have a joke around the shop floor now, safety fourth. <laughs> wow, that's wow. That's even worse than uh, our segment on our podcast. I, I, I know you. <laughs> you, might, you might have to update it. Yeah, <laughs> you, I was you're setting the say. bar too high. <laughs> uh, 
This is this versus workers in, in, into an impossible situation that can only be solved one of two ways. The first way uh, is to lie on the inspection sheet about how long it took per each car. Um, <laughs> basically, our bosses now told us just lie, just lie on the inspection seat, write bogus times to satisfy them. The second way is to not really do the inspections, at least not properly. Management doesn't explicitly tell workers to do this, but you're just made to feel you're an idiot, another worker said. Like you're the only one in the world who would care about this stuff. Now you're holding up the train and pushing everything back. And it's made clear to them that if they keep holding trains back, their yard will be shut down and they'll lose their jobs. <laughs> So that's that's the sort of, you know, consequences of PSR, um, you know, it, it has these lofty goals, as you say, Justin, of increasing efficiency, you know, trying to get um, to, you know, to keep cars moving um, and to, to, you know, reduce the amount of like classification that you have to do and stuff like that. See, um, and the other the other improve, like if you're running trains faster, the unfortunate situation in America with passenger rail is that for the most part. Passenger rail is share is using freight owned freight railway owned rail. So if the yes. freight trains are moving faster, that means the Amtrak train stuck behind it can also move faster. All right. And, you know, we we would we would like that to happen. Is, I mean, one thing which is interesting there is sometimes the Amtrak train has a lower scheduled speed than freight trains do. Yes, that does happen <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> uh, this is of course because passenger trains have to stop and freight trains don't. Yes. Um, yeah, so, you know, as you say, there's, there's been these lofty goals, but this is the thing is that, you know, these, these railroads that sort of claim to practice PSR aren't really doing that. They're just cutting costs and, you know, using the banner of PSR to sort of, you know, brand those activities in a way, because it's like the hot new thing to do, you know? And so that's that's where we're at. Um, as we say, the the only railroad that hasn't uh, done PSR is the BNSF, um, which is sort of bucking the trend in that they're they're um, read some articles that say they're working to build a third main line through Kansas. They're actually um, expanding their network slightly and doing more capital investment. They've also built logistics centers, which is apparently some sort of BNSF euphemism for like a rail served business park, which. Sounds kind of bleak to me, but, you know, I guess I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take what I can get at this point. <laughs> well, even the even the PSR railroads are kind of still investing in infrastructure. I know that like most places, they're replacing rail with mm-hmm. uh, continuous welded rail. Um, they're not I, I, I don't think they're doing much in terms of, let's say, building extra tracks. Right. Um, I don't know that they're improving capacity in that way, but it is it is definitely you know, there, there is an extent to which PSR has resulted in more investment in infrastructure than let's say the insane, uh, cost cutting of like the eighties and early nineties. Right. Um, Yeah. I was going to say, you know, a lot of them have also been, been forced to invest in, in PTC systems lately. Yes. um, To meet federal regulations. Uh, you know, of course, that's been a boondoggle in a lot of ways, <laughs> but uh, it is a, a modern technology that will allow for hopefully faster, uh, you know, rail times. Although I was reading that, you know, um, Amtrak had a plan to, to run trains between, I think, Chicago and, and St. Louis at like 110 miles per hour. 
but now the Union Pacific has installed PTC on that line that limits it to 90. So thanks oh for boy. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Um, Great. And, well, it's you like know, signaling again. They, everyone's got a different system. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. You know, um, yeah, everyone has a different PTC system. Yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. That's also a fun thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you everyone do get- tried to make it work on GPS as opposed to line side infrastructure, <laughs> and it just continually fucks up. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, you do get, uh, you know, some innovations, like, as you say, distributed power, which is, is one of the things that makes PSR sort of feasible and that you can run these very long trains with the use of distributed power that make it so that you can actually safely break a very long train. You know, that was something that the technology just didn't exist for, uh, you know, until the what, like the 90s or so when yeah. you got like reliable remote control of locomotives. Um, and yeah, so, but now you have, you know, trains that can, in some cases be like three miles long and in a lot of places they are longer than the passing sightings, uh, that exist for, you know, along all of these mostly single track main lines. But as you say, a lot of the railroads aren't really investing in double tracking their main lines, even though it would probably be to their benefit at this point. Um, (laughs) but, uh. Yeah, that's 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 where we're at. Uh, that's PSR, um, and uh, that's probably what we'll be contending with for you know some time until something else happens or something comes along to replace it. I had another thought. Oh, you know the other thing too is that um, there's also climate change, which is happening. Yes, <laughs> never heard and, of it, and uh, none of this. Uh, activity that the railroads have doing has really done anything about that at all. Um, you know, you, you have seen some railroads that are starting to talk about like battery locomotives, Ugh. which, oh, um, boy. yeah, I, <laughs> it would be funny if they did do battery locomotives because it would erase all the gains that they've gotten from PSR of like not having to wait at yards by having to like idle a locomotive <laughs> for like 16 hours recharging it. <laughs> I was about to say, yeah, there'd be a lot of complex yard maneuvers. I don't think battery locomotives are going to happen. I don't think so freight. either. I, I think that's if they needed to do that, they, if they were going to do that, they would do that with overhead lines. Right. I mean, another fun thing, of course, is railroads. A lot of times they like to market themselves as like, well, we're the most, uh, we're the greenest way to move large amounts of freight. Mm-hmm. And the freight they're hauling is coal and crude oil. Right. Um, <laughs> and like the, the BNSF is like on its own, like the world's what, like third largest consumer of diesel fuel. Uh, yeah, it's uh, no, it's BNSF. BNSF is two after the U.S. Army. <laughs> um, and then U- Union Pacific is third. Beautiful. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just millions of gallons, you know. Um, no, I think, you know, the, the only place where battery locomotives make sense is like short haul stuff. Like, probably like a yard switcher could be battery powered, you know. But well, they, yeah. um, was they it, have um, been in the past. As I was gonna say, doesn't right. GE have a uh, hybrid? Switcher? Uh, yes, I think they do. And I know that Norfolk Southern and Norfolk Southern has put together some hybrid locomotives, which they seem to run for like a year or two and then dispose of. But um, this is another interesting PSR consequence is because they idled so much motive power. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the United States locomotive manufacturers went out of business. 
Oh, I was going to get to that. Yeah. You know, they've, they've idled hundreds of locomotives. And one thing I wondered was like, how's that going to affect GE and EMD? And the answer is, uh, they're both already gone. Yeah. Yes. Not, not great. <laughs> well, see, this, this is how Metra ends up with like, what, 10 different kinds of locomotives because they'll yeah. buy literally anything and slap an HEP unit in, call it a commuter rail locomotive. I say we should, yeah, we should have an episode on Metra and their propensity for buying everyone else's cast offs instead of buying new passenger locomotives. Like they're running SD70s now on like commuter service in Chicago. <laughs> like, uh, what are you they doing? They haven't quite finished those yet. I'm excited to see them. I, I think it's a prime, it, they have a prime opportunity to electrify by buying some old uh, AEM7s. That is true. Yeah. That is true. However, I'm sure you saw that they recently put out that thing that they're challenging, uh, you know, um, locomotive builders to make a battery powered locomotive. And uh, myself and everyone else was screaming at them that they already have an electric line. They know how to do this. Generally, I don't I don't start a request for proposals with. you know, we're challenging right. manufacturers. <laughs> Your mission, if you to provide choose to a product, it. yeah, no, that's that's what you do when you're setting up a collegiate competition thing to hire new engineers. Yeah, <laughs> also like what uh, what manufacturers? Because uh, right, um, yeah, I mean, EMD technically still exists. GE technically is still making locomotives, but like all the Un- under the banners of other companies, other yeah. the banners of other companies, <laughs> yes, but like all, and I mean, you can probably rant about Buy America here a little bit, but like. Uh-huh. You're basically going to be buying from Siemens or Alstom or maybe Valsalar or something like that. And like, mm-hmm. they're not going to be super keen on doing that because they already make electric freight locomotives that run off a of wire. Yeah. Right. You have yeah. an angry German guy just yell at you, put up the damn fires. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And th- then you just have some meek Metra executive be like, well, but BNSF and UP own the rails and we don't want to ask them to they put even own some the of the wires. cars. Yeah, <laughs> like when I was That's in Chicago, I went out to visit one of my friends who was out in the burbs, and I'm sitting there in the gallery car, like, why does it say BNSF and not Metro? Oh. <laughs> yeah yeah that's the you know bnsf is is one of the only freight railroads that does still run passenger service technically because they operate part of metro's network for them <laughs> yeah no you know they'd have to they'd have to ask those railroads nicely to put up some wires in the chicago area and so they're not going to do that instead well, they're they going have, they to have, they have this whole like you know they they have this whole thing where they're a government agency which should allow them to compel the railroads to right. allow them to put up wires. Right. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a learned helplessness, I think. You know? I think so, too. Yeah. 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 I, I observed this the other day, though, that, you know, the, the wonderful ACS-64 that Amtrak uses that replaced the AEM-7s, like, that thing has, what, like 8,000 horsepower or something? 8,600 yeah. horsepower, I think? That, like, beats the pants off of an SD-70 easily. I know they're not directly comparable because they're, you know, six axle versus four axle but like it seems like this should be an easy sell to to the railroads like you know put up some wires and then you can pull more with less locomotives yeah and also yeah and also you don't have to refill anything you know but i don't know we came very close in the 1970s during the oil crisis there were a lot of railroads that started drafting plans for electrification but then gas got cheap again and they were like oh everything will be fine Mm-hmm. This will never happen ever again. There will never be any reason Not to consider our problem. this. <laughs> nope. I'm surprised they didn't bring back coal for a bit. <laughs> they tried. Yeah. There was a serious movement uh, 
from a, 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 a group called American Coal Enterprises to design a modern steam locomotive. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you're doing like a steam turbine electric locomotive, maybe. <laughs> Just put a power plant on axles and send it out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That reminds me of the Swiss locomotive that they had in World War II because they didn't have coal uh, to heat up the steam. So they installed electric uh, heating elements instead and ran steam locomotives powered by electric (laughs) using wires. (laughs) What a ludicrous... Every time you mention that, I get angry. It's, you know... (laughs) It is like, yeah, it's like we're gonna we're gonna take out the firebox, and instead I I got this induction burner from IKEA, uh, and it's gonna yes. be great. <laughs> of course, then the thing is, like it. after World War II, and they got their coal back, they were like, yeah, never mind, we're gonna we're gonna convert this back. <laughs> it was an interesting idea, but no thanks. I don't know. Lots of lots of missed opportunities in rail in like the 20th century, as we've discussed on our high speed rail episode where we talked about all the turbine trains that nearly succeeded or did succeed to their detriment in the case of the turbo liners. Um, You know, we could have had all these interesting propulsion technologies and instead we just have diesel. Um, I still remember the Bombardier back when they were building the first Acela train sets had also built a prototype where the power cars ran off a turbine instead of an electric motor. Mm -hmm. It was painted red instead of blue. And they showed it off in a fair number of places. And like at the time I was, well, I still am, but at the time I was a fairly avid um, transport tycoon player. And they even like someone made a graphics pack of American trains and they added the jet train. That's what they called it. They added the jet train as a, you know, a non-electrified variant of the Acela if you wanted to um, use that, except, you know, that's that's the only place anyone ever used them because they never actually built them in real life because nobody wanted it. Yeah, there's like one sitting at the test track in Pueblo, Colorado, and that's yeah, it. Yeah, it's still it's there. It's still out there. I think you yep. can see it on Google Google Earth. <laughs> Ooh. Um, yeah, no, they did that where they toured it around the country to show people what they can't have. Uh, which, which they also did with the ice uh, well, see, at train least, when they at brought least that over. A classic <laughs> American move right there. At least it was under its own power that time because they had to tow the ICA yeah. and the X2000 <laughs> behind like what, a Genesis or something? Did they have a Genesis yet? No, they were they were uh, P69 ACs or whatever. The, these the like F69 PHAC. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh god, yeah. <laughs> which they at least painted it to match whatever it was towing for these tours but like... <laughs> Well, that was like the big, you know, the F-69 PHACs were mostly experimental. Their only real service to speak of was hauling the ice train around the interior of the U.S. to be like, look what you don't get. (laughs) Are you happy? Yeah, they even had to tow it to Boston because uh, they still hadn't finished electrifying the entire Northeast Corridor. (laughs) (laughs) They were also used for uh, testing AC propulsion systems. That was the main purpose of them. Right. Wait a minute. Are these... These aren't the locomotives that ended up on the Marlboro train, are they? Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> oh, that's that is that that's that is a cursed um cursed the train Marlboro right train. There. Is that like the Mick train? Uh yes, but worse. No, the Marlboro train is they tried to Oh no, those were F59 PHIs. Mm. Um the Marlboro train was they tried to they basically tried to do super train. Um they did a luxury retreat train like a crew like they build as like a cruise except on rails um and you could only get tickets by 
you know, sending in enough packets of Marlboros or whatever the hell. And mm. it it went extremely poorly because none of the people involved knew how to really run a railway in the first place. Never mind a railway that they tried to turn into a luxury um, yeah. experience, we'll say. They designed the cars wrong, so they had to scrap them all. Yeah, they, it, it never actually ran. They tested yeah. it, and it never actually it, it failed miserably. Well, you know, good effort. Yeah, they tried. Yes. A for effort. They got further along than the Hyperloop ever has, so. That's true. true. That's true. Uh, yeah. So, um, any, any closing thoughts about PSR or other things to, to get in at the last minute here? I can't think of anything else I want to say about it. <laughs> um, train good. Yes. Yes. We do. Train we love good, train truck bad. Train good. Uh, just build train. That's our other motto here. Yes. Um, et cetera. Um, Yeah. Well, Justin, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank and, you. Oh, no much. problem. It was a good time. Yeah, bringing your knowledge. I do want to. I, I have in the works an uh, an episode about the Metro Liner. Have you finished that book yet? Oh no, I haven't. Uh, <laughs> it's sitting on my coffee table, and it looks much better as a coffee table book than it does with me reading it. So right, right. <laughs> I like. Such I love the, the Metro Liner. I identify with it strongly because it's. Um, it is also um, very ambitious, but ultimately plagued with problems. And I, yes. I. I identify strongly with that. So <laughs> very ambitious, but rubbish. Right. Yes, exactly. Yes. V- very much the analog to the, you know, the British APT, um, in that way, you know, um, really funny that, you know, like in the 1960s, um, we were, you know, building the Apollo to go to the moon and we also couldn't get an electric train, right? <laughs> 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 And also, you know, the two countries. No, no, here's the thing, though. Here's the thing, though. One of those projects had Germans with expertise involved. You know what? It's a good point. Good point. (laughs) (laughs) All we needed was a few ex Nazis to work at Bud, and they would have sorted it out for us. Oh dear. Look, I mean, you know, I, I if it, uh, the thing is at the Pennsylvania Railroad, it wasn't too hard to find people with that kind of sympathies. Um, <laughs> no, but they didn't have the experience. That's the problem. Uh, that's true. They didn't. They never actually went overseas to go do Nazi stuff. Right. Um, yeah. And also, you know, the the APT and the Metroliner, both from from countries that you would think would have good rail expertise and be able to pull that off, and both just complete failures <laughs> <laughs> sort of a, a symbol and analogy for the decline of of both of uh, you know our respective societies in that regard <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh yeah would love to have you back for that and possibly other topics in the future yeah that'd be a good time i'd enjoy yeah. that <laughs> uh and uh, we should plug your podcast well there's your problem which is a, a very amusing podcast um, with slides yes. With, with slides, slides. yes. I about just, engineering disasters. Yeah, I just finished the most recent episode, which was which was very fun. Um, oh, I, and, I haven't uh, listened to that one yet, but I can't wait to hear you shit on uh, the new path station. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah we, <laughs> we did a whole episode on the career of Santiago Calatrava. See, this is the thing. I've slipped on the marble steps in that station too many times. So <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's personal now. It's personal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't know anything about work. Santiago Calatrava, and now I hate him. So, you know. 
Uh, and also, you have a YouTube channel, Do Not Eat 01, yes. on YouTube, where you produce Hasn't wonderful been videos. Updated in a while, but should be at some point. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> things are happening in that regard. Things are happening. <laughs> We're very looking very slowly, strongly but into they it. are happen- right. happening. Yeah. All right. Uh, I don't know how to finish the episode. Uh, <laughs> follow us on Twitter, I guess. Yes. 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 Follow us on Twitter. I am at Tank Tainer. Um, I am at Selectric Four Zero One, and this show is at No Idea Show. Yes. No idea. I'm banned from show. Twitter. You, you, are. you are banned, <laughs> and yet you continue to post. <laughs> yes, <laughs> through through a loophole, a, a legal loophole known as posting from the podcast account. <laughs> yes. Uh, what is it? it's WTYP Pod? Is that I right? I think so. Yeah. Yes, that's it. Go and follow there um, for ruthless mocking of people who like Tesla and or the Loop and or the Hyperloop. And, and those sorts of things. Um, it's a good time. We all have a good time on, on train Twitter. Uh, we do. Except, except when someone posts a map, then we have a very bad time. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's bad when you text your friends when the map gets posted? Mm-hmm. Right, yes. yeah. <laughs> you text them to let them know that the map discourse has popped off and they don't need to look at Twitter for a few hours. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, all right. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much. I have no idea what I'm doing. I was not prepared for this. I'm trying and I'm learning. Thank you for your patience. There's so many mistakes I have already made, but I'm working to be better day by day. And I think I'm gonna make it, but for now I'll say I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing